On the first day of the week at early dawn, they came to the tomb, taking the spices that they had prepared. They found the stone rolled away from the tomb, but when they went in, they did not find the body. While they were perplexed about this, suddenly two men in dazzling clothes stood beside them. The women were terrified and bowed their faces to the ground. But the men said to them, Why do you look for the living among the dead? He is not here, but is risen. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee that the Son of Man must be handed over to sinners and be crucified, and on the third day rise again? Then they remembered his words, and returning from the tomb, they told all this to the eleven and to all the rest. Now it was Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary the mother of James, and the other women with them who told this to the apostles. But these words seemed to them an idle tale, and they did not believe them. But Peter got up and ran to the tomb. Stooping and looking in, he saw the linen clothes by themselves. Then he went home, amazed at what had happened. May the Lord bless to our hearts and our minds this reading of his word. Someone once said that human beings can live for weeks without food, days without water, seconds without air, but no time at all without hope. The one thing I know about everyone in this room is that you and I, all of us, are hopers. We live on hope. We hope that our lives are going to have some sort of significance. We hope that there will be someone in this world that will love us and that we will be able to love. We hope that our children are going to turn out all right. Children hope their parents are going to turn out all right. (laughs) And we all hope that death is not the end, but the beginning of our life. We've gathered here this Easter morning to hear the greatest words of hope ever spoken to humankind. He is not here. He is risen. John Ortberg, in one of his books, tells a Ken Davis story about a woman who happened to be looking out the window of her house one day, and she was horrified to see her German shepherd dog shaking the life out of the neighbor's pet rabbit. Her family had been quarreling with this family, and this was only going to make it worse. She grabbed a broom and ran outside. She pummeled the pooch until he dropped the rabbit, now covered with dog spit and extremely dead. After a moment's thought, she quickly grabbed the rabbit, brought it into the house, She dumped its lifeless body into the bathtub and turned on the shower. When the water was running off the rabbit clean, she rolled him over and rinsed the other side. Now she had a plan. She got her hair dryer and blew the rabbit dry. Using an old comb, she groomed the rabbit till it looked pretty good. Then when the neighbor wasn't looking, she hopped over the fence, snuck across the yard, and propped him back up in his cage. No way was she taking the blame for this. An hour later, she heard screams coming from the neighbor's yard. She ran outside, pretending she didn't know what was going on. What's happened, she asked innocently. The neighbor came running to the fence. All the blood had drained from her face. She was white. She said, our rabbit, our rabbit, he died a week ago. We buried him in the backyard, and now he's back. What manner of rabbit is this? 
but he wasn't really alive. He was just a fluffed up dead rabbit. There's a lot of people who are so desperate for hope, including people in churches sometimes, who fluff themselves up just to look okay on the outside. But inside, their hope has died. Whenever that happens, when an individual loses hope that he or she can grow and be used by God and no joy, when a spouse loses hope that a marriage can ever improve, when a church loses the conviction that its best days lie in front of it, then hope dies. And when you let your hope die, you will miss the adventure that God intends your life to be, and all your dreams will die before you do, and you'll end up living like a fluffed up dead person. Paul, the apostle, says that in this hope we are saved. He says we have to keep hoping in God because of another truth about the human race, that a lot of times our hopes and plans don't pan out, do they? Some of you have had real hopes for a relationship, and that relationship died. Some of you hoped for a career, and that career didn't work out. Some of you hoped for an accomplishment, something that you wanted to accomplish, but it didn't happen. For health to work out, but it hasn't worked out. Paul's word for this is groaning. Groaning is what people do when their hopes are frustrated and when they're disappointed. And Paul says in Scripture, the whole of creation has been groaning from the fall right up to the present time. Paul says we wait eagerly with inextinguishable perseverance. John Ortberg also noted that one of the remarkable things that Jesus brought into the world was the elevation of the virtue of hope to a major, major virtue. Hope was actually not something that was admired in the Greco-Roman world. The Stoic philosophers felt that it simply set you up for disappointment, that you were much better off to keep your expectations very low, and then you won't be disappointed. But Jesus said, no, no, hope for high things in your life. Hope for, for major things in your life, and then they'll come about. Hope is what gets us through. And it's important for us to know that from a Christian perspective. But what we're hoping for is not accomplishments that were come as a result from our own strength, our own giftedness. It's based on what God is doing in the world, part of the larger pattern. 2,000 years ago, a group of people put all their hope in a rabbi named Jesus. He was filled with such an unshakable confidence in his father that they invested their future into his hands. And then he was killed. And when he died, their hope died with him. They thought it was the end, and they groaned, and they heard the screaming coming from the other side of the fence. A bunch of Roman soldiers said, This rabbi, this rabbi, we arrested him, we tried him, we convicted him, we stripped him, we mocked him, we whipped him, we hung him on a cross and crucified him. He died two days ago. We buried him. And now he's back. He's back. And that fact changed the world. I know we all want facts to believe in the resurrection, but we don't have them. We have faith. But the nearest we can come to a fact is when you look at the lives of the people who were there at that time and the change that happened to them. Well, for example, if you'd gone there on Good Friday and you'd seen the disciples, 
They were upstairs, they're huddled in a room, the door is locked, they're afraid, they're terrified, they're, wor they're worried that the Romans are going to come and get them too. They're fearful people. And, and two weeks later, if you've gone and found the same group of people, the doors are open, the windows are open, they're singing, they're laughing, they're making plans to go out and tell the world the good news about Jesus Christ. Mary was changed from a mourner to a messenger. Thomas was changed from a doubter to a believer. Peter was changed from a denier to a preacher. And this band of sniveling has-beens is transformed into a group of people that went out and changed the world. How did that happen if it wasn't for the resurrection? What changed them if it wasn't the experience of seeing Christ raised from the dead? Our job is to carry forth that good news without fear. But fear is the thing which keeps us from doing a lot of stuff in this world. I remember one time I went to the San Diego Zoo, and it's a great zoo, and what they're really proud of is that they don't have very many cages for animals. Most of the animals are in these enclosures that are carefully designed to keep the animals in, but for you to really be able to see them. And the, the little tour bus drove up to the giraffe enclosure, and there they were, all these giraffes, and he said, you know what? He says, the only thing that's keeping them in is just this two, three-foot little ditch that's around their enclosure. He said, every one of those giraffes in three steps could be out of that enclosure. But they don't do it because they're afraid of stepping down. They are fearful of stepping down that they might fall and break their necks. So three steps away from freedom, fear keeps them in their enclosure. When I hear that, I think not about just giraffes, but about people. People who are three steps from freedom in their life, but there's some sort of fear that's holding them back, that's keeping them in, that's keeping them down. There's a fairly obscure movie that was made called The Last Holiday. It's a British comedy written by J.B. Priestley, released in 1950. The actor Alec Guinness played George Bird, a salesman, and he is a very, he's cautious as a civil servant. He's very timid, meek, and mild. He's never been married because when women see his face, all they see is dread of life. And it's not an attractive quality. He lives a very small little life. And then one day, a persistent headache drives him to seek a doctor. And after he has these medical tests, he's, uh, he's told to come back the next day. And when he comes back, there's the classic thing where his folder of records has been switched with another folder, and the doctor reads him a medical report that's someone else's report, and it says to him that he has a terminal, untreatable illness, and he will be dead in six weeks, when in reality, all he needs is an aspirin. The doctor's error transforms George Bird's life. He quits his job that very day. He empties his bank account. No need to save for old age. He books a room in a luxury resort hotel. He'd never imagined setting a foot, foot in a place like that until he spotted the graveyard racing toward him. And days later, he begins his last holiday. No longer needing to play it safe, Bird can say and do things that he previously never would have dared. There's nothing left to fear. For the first time in his life, women find him attractive. 
Bankers, executives, government ministers are lining up for his advice, offering partnerships and vice presidencies. Everyone senses in him a mysterious quality, a detachment, a freedom that makes him a figure to be reckoned with. The viewer alone knows just that that, what that mysterious quality is. Byrd's death sentence has been his liberation. He is no longer a prisoner of a terrifying future. In the movie, there's this really interesting surprise ending that I'm going to put in next week's sermon. <laughs> when Jesus says in the Beatitudes, blessed are you who are persecuted, what he's saying really is, blessed are you who have nothing left to lose. You've got nothing left to lose. You're not afraid anymore. That's why when Paul said, I don't care if I live or die. If I live, I'll serve Jesus. If I die, I'll go to be with Jesus and God. It doesn't matter to me, either one. I've got nothing left to lose. It's a great freedom to have in that way. The, the resurrection, the, the hope of the resurrection kind of can give that to us too. We can say, well, you know, even if something bad happens to me here, I got nothing left to lose because this isn't the only act in the play. This is only the first act in the play. God has a second act in store for us. Resurrection says that the body itself is not a product, not a consumable. Though it is biogradable, it is not disposable. Though broken, flawed, or worn out, every human being continues to be precious to its designer. God does not plan to throw my body away like a banana peel or a plastic water bottle. God plans to keep the whole thing the world passes away, but we don't pass away. Five years ago this week, my mom died. And so whenever Holy Week comes around, I always think about her. And um, it, it reminded me of, of an experience that I had when I was a kid growing up. But I bet, I bet you've all had this one too. When I was a kid, uh, the big thing was to go to drive-in movie theaters. And my my uh, parents would load us into the car. We'd go to the drive-in theater. It was cheap. My dad liked that a lot. It was cheaper than the walk-in theaters. And um, it doesn't matter how good the movie was, I always fell asleep during the movie. And the parents would drive me home. And when we got home, they would scoop me out of the back seat, still stone cold asleep, take me to my room, take my clothes off, put my pajamas on, tuck me into bed, all without me ever waking up. And when I woke the next morning, I'd be startled at where I was. I mean, last thing I remember, I was in a car with regular clothes on watching a movie. How did I get to be here? What happened? I believe that sort of thing, same thing that happened to my mom on the last night of her life. She was lying in a hospital bed. Her legs didn't work, she was crippled, she had bed sores and her mind was starting to go on her too. And that last night, in the middle of the night, our Lord, the one who defeated death, slipped quietly into her room and scooped her up into his loving arms. And when she woke, she was home. She was in her heavenly home. She could walk and think right. She was vibrant and fully alive. My dad was there waiting for his bride of 61 years her parents too, and many friends. They were glad to see her as she moved into the glorious light of the everlasting day.
Brothers and sisters, that's God's promise to you too and to your loved ones. That when your last night comes, that he will scoop you into his arms and take you home to be with the one who created you, who loved you. And there will be waiting for you people who love you too and who know your name and are glad to see your face. That is the good news of the gospel. That is the message of Easter for you and for your loved ones this day. Believe it in hope and peace and love. Amen.